This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, our hot question of the day today has to do with something a little fun. We're talking something a little fun, perhaps your ultimate like bucket list destination. It all has to do with travel today. Because later on in the show, we are going to be talking to an organization that is planning to do these deep sea tours where they will take you, if you have the money, down to see the wreckage of the Titanic. Now, you know, 30 plus years ago when they finally did discover the wreckage of the Titanic, who would have thought something like this was even possible? I think it was in grade eight when that finally happened after it had been missing for decades and decades. Now they're offering to take you for some big bucks down to actually see the wreckage. So for our hot question of the day today, we're asking you, if you had the choice, what would you rather do? Would you rather go deep, deep, deep down under the sea to see the Titanic? Or would you rather buy a ticket to go up into space with maybe, you know, either Elon Musk, Richard Branson, whoever is planning that thing right now? Or would you say, you know what, I'd rather not spend my money on any of that. I'm not that extreme. What would be your choice? Let's just say you had the bucks to do this. Would you rather go down to see the Titanic or up into space? Or would you just maybe rather go sit on a beach somewhere? I am of the beach variety. Like I'll tell you right now, that is my choice. I'd be like, you know what? Um, I'm just going to go sit on this beach and read a couple of books. I don't need to go down to the Titanic and I don't need to go up into space. We're actually having this conversation here at work and people were shocked that I said, no, I don't really have a desire to go up into space. I'm sure the high def pictures that I see are good enough for me. That is just fine. How about you? Now, Weigh in with this. You can go to simi at cknw.com and send me an email. We're having some fun with this one today, okay? You can also call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. And if you're online, by all means, cast your vote. Go to simisara980 or you can go to at cknw. That is where you will find that. And you can let us know what you think about that. I'm sure people will have some thoughts on this. And hey, listen, maybe you can try to sell me on this. I am of the, I don't want to do either one of those, but... What would be the point of going down to see the Titanic or going up into space? Why would people spend so much money to do that? That is my big question. Let me know what your thoughts are on the hot question of the day. They're spending millions and millions of dollars. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. That was President Donald Trump back in 2017. And guess what? A couple of years later, he has been declared innocent of collusion or any crimes relating to the allegations of collusion with Russia during the 2016 presidential election campaign. So what does this mean now in Washington? What's going to happen? How is this going to change things, if anything at all? Let's find out now. Joining us is Reggie Cicchini, our Global National Washington producer. Hi, Reggie. Hello. Hey, where are you? I am outside of the White House right now, kind of keeping my eye on uh, a trade story with Christopher Freeland and on what's happening with uh, with Trump and the Mueller fallout right now. So I apologize if it's loud behind <laughs> me right now. No, no, no. Great place for you to be. We'll talk about the trade story in a moment and you can bring us up to date. But first, what is the mood like in Washington today in light of what we know now about the Mueller report? 
Well, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty right now. There are a lot of plot holes when it comes to uh, what we know via the uh, summary that was handed out by Attorney General Barr over the weekend. Democrats are calling uh, t- uh, calling out by saying, look, this report needs to be put out in public right now because there are certain things that don't make sense. They're questioning why Special Counsel Robert Mueller was able to make a determination that there might not be collusion, according to this uh, summary from Barr, but why he chose to not make any decision when it came to obstruction and left that up to the Department of Justice. So these are the things that are kind of fueling that fire for Democrats to say this needs to be in the public so we can see it. Yeah. So is that likely to happen? Like, will this thing be released? Well, I mean, it's possible, but it's also not possible. This is up to the Attorney General. Uh, there are going to be some things that the White House is certainly going to redact from it. They're going to try to keep national security things uh, under wraps. They're going to keep uh, grand jury testimony has to stay in secrecy. So those things likely not. But again, this this is up to the Attorney General. If he wants to put this into the public, he could put the full thing. He could put redacted portions in. So that's, why I think, where you're going to end up seeing the Democrats using their power of subpoena to try and get these reports out. Yeah, let's talk about the Democratic side of things then. Like, clearly this took a lot of wind out of their sails having this result. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, for two years now, you've had Democrats saying the president has colluded with Russia. The president uh, has done all of these things wrong. Look at all the people that are around the president. They're being charged and put into jail because of this. All of a sudden now you're seeing that the tune has changed to this is a good thing for America, that the president hasn't been uh, you know, found to have colluded with a foreign adversary. So Democrats, yes, they're kind of feeling a little bit of the burn right now, but they also fear that they could look like they've chewed down on a sour grape if they try to move forward by saying, well, look, we lost on this right now. Let's try to investigate this as much we can, as opposed to moving around to what they actually should be doing, is, which is uh, gearing up for an election and trying to deal with the things that the electorate might actually uh, want to talk about, things like health care and national security. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So what are they going to do? Are they going to keep digging their heels in deeper on this thing or is it time for them to move on? Well, I mean, it depends on who you're talking to. There are already some Democrats that are saying that we intend to have William Barr come and testify before committee. We want to talk to Robert Mueller. If things aren't going to be put into the public eye, we want to be able to ask them questions so under oath they can go on the record and tell us what's in there. There are some Democrats that are still continuing to use this impeach word by saying, well, look, Donald Trump, you know, we may still be able to go after him on certain things. Nancy Pelosi is trying to claw that back a little bit. So this is a very fine line that the Democrats are walking right now. They want to get the information from the special counsel's report but they also want to be able to move on to say, look, we've wasted two years on this. Maybe it's time we start moving forward. Right. Okay. So, Clay, I guess they're treading very carefully today then because there must be a lot of, I guess, closed doors trying to figure out what their take is going to be. Absolutely. I mean, look, the president has already been very vocal today by saying that, you know, he doesn't ever want to have to have another president go through this again with a special counsel. He started, he wants to see kind of investigations of the investigators. We heard that from Lindsey Graham earlier today as well, saying that now that this Mueller report has been settled, maybe it's time that we start looking at the Democrats. Maybe it's time we start looking at Hillary's emails, drumming up all of the things that kind of the Republicans rallied against over the last couple of years. So Democrats are basically behind a closed door saying, here's what went wrong. Here is how our messaging has to kind of change after what we've seen happen now. And uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how the Democrats try to spin this going forward if they're not able to push this anymore. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the Republican side of this as well. I know Lindsey Graham says he feels the president has been vindicated, but not everybody sounded like that, though. Like even like I saw Mitch McConnell and others saying that, yeah, there is a little bit to be seen here. 
Well, absolutely. There's clarity that's missing from this from uh, the special counsel's report. Because remember, this is William Barr putting out the, uh, a summary of what he sees inside the report. And you have to remember that William Barr is a political appointee from the president. So there is some concern that he could be whitewashing certain things and not putting things in the public because it could be damaging towards the president. That's, uh, that's a concern right now. But there are Republicans who are basically saying what the president said last week, which was, we just want this full report to come out in public because if there is nothing that is standing in the president's way of saying, I can be totally exonerated or I can be completely vindicated by this, then we need to have that out there as well. So there is a push from Republicans to kind of join alongside Democrats. In the House alone, there was a unanimous vote of 420 to zero to get this put out in the public. So there is a bipartisan support for it. It just is, it depends on kind of what side of the aisle you're on as to how you want to get things going. I can tell you, Reggie, watching it from here, I wonder, like, how does anything ever get done in Washington if this is the kind of stuff they're arguing about all the time? Well, I mean, look, this has been, it was 22 months of, of the president's first, uh, you know, first two, uh, term in the Oval Office, and none of the agenda moved forward. There was, uh, you know, a stall when it came to health care. There was a stall when it came to border security. Anything the president tried to do was stymied by this investigation by the special counsel, and this is just what happens in Washington. It's how things work, and it's unfortunately how things don't work. Interesting. Okay, so now that's all still to come. Uh, Let's talk about the other reason why you're standing (laughs) out there in front of the White House. And what is this trade issue with Krista Freeland going on? So she's actually meeting with uh, with the U.S. Trade Representative today, Robert Lighthizer. She's meeting with a couple of uh, uh, congressional lawmakers that are on the Ways and Means Committee uh, because I guess there's there's going to be some kind of uh, you know potential moving forward when it comes to the aluminum and steel tariffs that Canada is dealing with when it comes to uh, President Trump. We haven't been given any ideas to what may come out of today's meeting, other than it may be a 45 minute meeting. So likely nothing getting hammered out fully today, but we could have a better idea as to how the government is moving forward when it comes to these tariffs. Right, because this is the stuff, the steel tariffs that we expected to see lifted right after we reached an agreement with the United States. Absolutely. And the fact that it's kind of just been punted to the side and pushed off while negotiations continue and while that cloud of the Mueller investigation was hanging over, there was people fearing that you know, maybe that was going to uh, kind of cloud up the judgment of how things were going to move going forward. Now that there's kind of a clarity or at least one cloud lifted off of the White House, uh, you know, this might provide for uh, an easier way to get negotiations rolling forward. So these are things that we're going to ask Christopher Freeland when she comes out likely sometime in the next 10 minutes. Oh, I guess I have a feeling maybe we'll be checking back in with you at some point, Reggie. OK, thank you. We'll let you go. <laughs> Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, our global national Washington producer. He's parked right outside the White House. Do you have a family doctor? Well, maybe you're one of the thousands of British Columbians who still don't have one. And I know what that's like. It is tough. Kind of makes you, it makes you put off going to the doctor, you know, when something is wrong. It impacts your health. And despite efforts by different governments, we still lag in kind of beefing up the number of family doctors that we have in practice out there. What we do know is that the provincial government has reached a tentative agreement with the doctors of BC. And one of the things in that agreement is to change the way some doctors are paid to give them a premium, which could be a little bit of an incentive, perhaps, when it comes to encouraging more family doctors. But at least one doctor is speaking out and saying, you know what, doesn't do enough to change family medicine. And she describes it as a crisis in primary care. We're going to talk more about that with Dr. Rita McCracken, who is a physician and researcher at UBC. Dr. McCracken, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So what do you think about this new agreement then? You think it doesn't go far enough? I think the proposed agreement does a lot to strengthen the current system that we have 
and uh, secure the service that's being provided, which by and large is is quite good. But you pointed out in your introduction that there's a lot of people who don't have family doctors right now. And we have research that's been available since about 2012 that shows us that new family doctors joining the profession are really interested in having a job that looks quite a bit different than the way the job is currently set up, where a physician sets up uh, his or her own business and then provides care through that business. New graduates would prefer to act as an employee providing services as a physician. Right. Okay. Are we not, so then what, what are we doing when it comes to encouraging graduates then to go into being a family doctor? Well, I I don't think that's actually the problem. So we have pretty good data that shows us that 60 to 70 percent of family medicine graduates are very interested in providing continuous community-based care to family doctors. Uh, But they want to deliver it in a place where they can work in a team. And in BC, up until now, we don't have a place where people can work that way. Um, Instead, we have uh, specialized practices, for example, the provision of palliative care or addictions care, where you can work in a team, but that's different than Mm -hmm. um, seeing a family doctor in a community. Right. Okay. So, because a lot of people still don't have a family doctor. And what do you think happens when we don't have one that we can connect with? Well, I think we end up um, receiving episodic care rather than continuous care. And what we know is that the the health benefits to people come from having an established relationship with a care provider or a care team, um, a group of people or a single person who gets to know you over time and can understand uh, how what health means to you and what your body is presenting in terms of health and illness. Yeah, because we put it off because we can't develop a relationship with somebody. But also, that's hard for doctors, right, as well, to juggle that many personal relationships. I think so. Um, I I think there definitely is a place for some episodic care. You know, a a very well young person who um, gets a terrible cold that doesn't go away after four weeks and needs somebody to see if uh, things are really terrible, probably fine that they go and see somebody who, um, who doesn't know them otherwise. But in more complicated and more common situations like aging, for example, mm-hmm. it can really be beneficial to avoid hospitalizations and unnecessary tests if you're able to see the same person. So are we, do you think, getting better at this? We've got these new urgent you know, primary care centers. We're kind of focusing more on that, but are we getting better? I think that the urgent primary care centers are potentially a piece of the puzzle, but what we really need to see is an option for family doctors to work in an environment where there is a team and where they are paid in a way that is different than how we have traditionally been paid by um, per person visit. Right. So you're saying salaries. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. I think it would look more like salaries. There's many different names that this gets given: uh, alternative payment plan, or capitation, or salaries, um, or sessional pay. So there's, there's, but it would be more like salary. Yes. So how do we encourage doctors to do that then? Well, this this was where um, I, I was surprised that the new PMA agreement agreement did not um, provide a more clear option for us to take a look at that. So right now, doctors don't have an option um, 
if you want to provide prim- community-based primary care, your only option is to use the, use the fee-for-service system. There is a, a paragraph in the new um, Physician Master Agreement that suggests that uh, discussions may take place in the mm-hmm. future. Um, but we don't have anything concrete. So that was a surprise to me that we didn't have something more concrete when we are in this situation where so many British Columbians need a family doctor. Okay, so then what do you think? What would you have done? What would you have suggested to them? Um, well, I think there are many established processes um, that we've seen being used successfully, for example, in other places in Canada. One is um, the use of the community health center model. So this is where a community would organize to create a health center and then hire the professionals that they need to provide care services. What we need for that, though, is we need um, a change in funding. So the funding can't come just through the doctors. It needs to be able to come to a nonprofit organization who is able to determine what the health needs are for the community. Right. That sounds like a big order. Um, I'm, I'm not sure it's a big order. I think it would probably be the same amount of funding that we see being used right now, but it would be distributed in a different way. And we do actually have some community health centers already established in British Columbia. We just haven't been able to add new ones for many years because there hasn't been a set of policy to enable that. Is there an area, Dr. McCracken, that you can point to where you say this works, like they're doing this here and it seems to be successful? Um, The community health center model in Ontario is working very well. We have good data that shows that the care of people who are seen there um, results in uh, better health outcomes for the patient. Uh, Job satisfaction for the providers is very high, and they don't have any trouble uh, recruiting people to those roles either. Right. Okay. So in the meantime, then, obviously, this isn't, you know, we're not getting anywhere with this right now. What do you, what kind of advice do you give to people who are looking for a family doctor? Um, The divisions of family practice are organizations of family doctors throughout the province, and most divisions have a list that they are creating of people who are needing a family doctor. And in some places, there is a matching process that is going on. So that's a real opportunity for people to Google um, where their division of family practice is in their community and then go and see if there's a place where they can put their name. Are there, do you think, available spots out there, but it's just so hard to connect people to them? Yeah, I think that's, um, there. there is a portion of the problem that can be solved through matching. I think our need for people who want family doctors is far in excess of what we currently have available. All right. Well, Dr. McCracken, thank you very much for talking to us about this. Thank you. That is Dr. Rita McCracken, who's a physician and researcher at UBC. What is happening in the United Kingdom? I don't even think people there know exactly what is going on there. Brexit, hard Brexit, soft Brexit, deal, no deal, whatever the case may be. Uh, Prime Minister Theresa May this morning has made comments expressing a lack of faith in any Brexit deal coming to fruition. And when you've got the Prime Minister of the country saying that, that's a little scary. So she's not even going to put it to a third vote because she knows that the votes aren't there. So she made comments about that in the House of Commons today. I reported your statement, Mr Speaker, which made clear that for a further meaningful vote to take place, the deal would have to be fundamentally different, not different in terms of wording, but different in terms of substance. I explained that as a result, some honourable and right honourable members were seeking further changes to the withdrawal agreement, and I requested a short extension to the Article 50 process to the 30th of June. 
I regret having to do so. I wanted to deliver Brexit on the 29th of March, but I am conscious of my duties as Prime Minister to all parts of our United Kingdom and of the damage that union leaving without a deal could do when one part of it is without devolved government and unable, therefore, to prepare properly. That is Theresa May in the House of Commons. So what does it all mean? What's going on there? Well, that's what we hope to find out now with the help of Redmond Shannon, who is our Europe correspondent for Global News. Redmond, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Simi. So does this make it sound like there's no deal and they're just headed for no deal Brexit? Well, the European Union certainly thinks so. Uh, It said uh, earlier today that it feels now that a no-deal scenario whereby the UK would uh, crash out of the EU potentially now on April 12th, and that would be mean potentially instant border checks, instant trade tariffs imposed at 11 p.m. local time here in the UK on April 12th, that that is more likely now than ever and that the EU is ramping up its preparations for a no-deal scenario. So it does seem more likely because no solution is popping its head up anywhere on this side or on that side. So what happened here with this latest turn of events then? Because they, it sounded like they, were, they got a little bit of an extension, they were supposed to vote on this thing, they were moving forward, and then all of a sudden it just came to a dead stop. Yeah, what Theresa May was relying on, um, hoping at least, that she would get the sense from MPs that they would vote on the third try, that they would vote for the withdrawal agreement. Now, remember, this withdrawal agreement between the UK and the EU was hammered out and signed on in November. And Theresa May took it to MPs in January. They voted against it in the greatest defeat in British House of Commons history. And then they voted against it in a slightly less large defeat um, a few weeks ago. (laughs) She was trying a third attempt, but she knows she's not going to. She knows that MPs are still not convinced. She her tactic appears to be that she is running down the clock, which the opposition have accused her of doing to to make every other eventuality seem worse. And that the deal that they don't like would be the least worst option. Well, they still aren't convinced. And we're now. Uh, just under three weeks from this new April 12th deadline, and they don't seem to want to vote for it. It may be that it could happen later this week instead of tomorrow, but it's hard to see how it would pass, and you'll get all the how hard to see how all these MPs will change their minds between now yeah. and then. Yeah, this seems crazy. So she was tr- just trying to push through the exact same deal for the third time? Yes, and the Speaker of the House of Commons uh, last week said you can't do that, in fact, because if, if uh, the same Parliament gets the exact same motion, uh, that well, that's against the rules. You can't have it. Now, it was done a second time because on the second occasion, it came with a, sort of an addendum caveat uh, of assurances from the European Union to British MPs to say, don't worry, because the central issue being the border between the UK and Ireland, that the, the concerns around that would potentially lock the UK or, or Northern Ireland into the European Union customs zone indefinitely, that there was a lot of concerns about that. Those concerns remain. Some assurances assured some MPs enough to sway some of them for the second vote, but nowhere near enough to uh, to do it again. And there are no further assurances. That there are, there's no further legal documentation this time. So, in fact, the Speaker... It's not known even if he would allow a third vote tomorrow or later this week. So 
I've seen on been watching it closely here in the UK, political correspondents on the major networks here and newspapers being interviewed, talking about what they expect to happen this week. Nobody knows exactly what's <laughs> going to happen. Nobody. That's, that's crazy. Like, it's just it's absolutely crazy it watching it from over here as well. What about the European Union side of this? So they gave a little bit of a delay there, but are they also running out of patience on this thing? Oh, they most certainly are. Well, it, it, it depends on how diplomatic certain voices from the European Union are. There's one prominent uh, German MEP who's quite frequently interviewed on it because he's on the relevant committee in Brussels and speaks fluent English. So you hear him a lot in the media here. And he was, I saw him speaking on uh, a news uh, network here uh, last week, and he was exasperated just said basically saying you in the uk you need to make up your minds we will we you know we will if you need to figure out how you want to leave and then we will try to make this happen but the ultimate problem being that the withdrawal agreement was signed by both sides and the european union continues to say you've signed it that's the only deal that we're offering because we need to make sure that border stays open for the peace process in Northern Ireland. Remember, of course, the European Union was started in, in the uh, late 50s, 60s, in the wake of the Second World War as a peacemaking tool yeah. between Germany and France to make sure war would not happen in Europe again. So really, it's at the heart of the EU to keep that border open, to keep the peace. Um, and they say that's above everything else. So you have seemingly a, a circle that still can't be squared but there it's going to be quite a week here in Westminster as a number of different possibilities are perhaps hammered through in the House of Commons. So meanwhile you've got then Redmond on the EU side of things they're preparing right they've yep. uh, more border aid they're, they're taking care of what they've got to take care of is the UK making any kind of preparation for this? The UK does have a contingency plan um, Yellowhammer is Operation Yellowhammer it's called it's um it is the no deal scenario. So there are contingencies being done for trade um, uh, to, in order to particularly things like essential trade, like medicines that are relied on to be imported from the EU, ways to get them into the country. Should there be overnight tariff checks and customs checks? Because, of course, right now, if, if, a, if a truck boards a ferry in the Netherlands or France and, and sails across to the UK, it just rolls off the other end. No, no need for checks. Yeah. It's one custom zone. So on the, April, the morning of April 13th, you could have the uh, obligations to check these trucks for customs compliance. And the logjam will be in, it could be huge. It no could kidding. be chaotic. And that's why these contingency plans are being put in place in order to find ways to make sure that at least essential things are getting through. But there are worries about basic things mm -hmm. like food too, whether supermarket shelves will go bare. A, a lot of pro-Brexit people are saying that's scaremongering. We've never been here before. No one really knows if that's going to happen. Oh, it's craziness. Redmond, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Simi. Have a good day. You too. That is Redmond Shannon, our Europe correspondent for Global News. So our hot question of the day today has been more of a philosophical kind of question of what you would do for your traveling bucket list. Like if you had the choice, would you like to go spend the money and see the Titanic? Like in person, deep down under the water there? Would you like to go up into space, say with Richard Branson's company or whoever? Or do you think, no, I am just not that extreme. I don't think I want to do either one of those things. Well, 53% of people have voted and said they say they're not that extreme. But 37% of people said space and 10% said they'd want to go see the Titanic. And I'm sure that is welcome news to our next guest, whose name is Stockton Rush. He's the CEO of Ocean Gate Incorporated. Stockton, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. 
Tell me about Ocean Gate Incorporated. What does your company do? So Ocean Gate's been around about 10 years, and we provide manned submersible services um, for everything from uh, tourism kind of activities like the Titanic to research, uh, do some stuff uh, for military uh, equipment testing, but basically anything that uh, could utilize a, a manned sub is, is where, we, uh, where we put ourselves. Okay, so then Stockton, you're telling me your company is going to offer people the opportunity to actually go down and see the Titanic? How's that going to work? Uh, well, it's uh, we're using a sub that uh, we designed with uh, help from uh, the Boeing Corporation as well as the University of Washington, and we've been working on this sub for about uh, coming on four years now. And the uh, the clients would show up in St. John's, uh, Newfoundland, and uh, board a offshore supply vessel, uh, motor out to the site, which takes about thirty hours, and then would dive and participate in in the dive. So operating sonar or communications or cameras and the like. And, uh, and they'd be at sea for uh, eight days and uh, return to St. John's. Okay, so how big is the submersible that you're going to go down into? Uh, it's 22 feet long. Uh, the internal space is about uh, the size of a Chevy Suburban or, or, or the equivalent. So it's uh, five foot in diameter and about 10 feet long. And in that, you have uh, five people, the three mission specialist clients, a researcher and a pilot. Okay, that's kind of tight quarters. How long does it take? So from the time that you leave the supply ship to the time that you get to the Titanic wreckage, how long does it take? That's about two hours down and two hours up. Um, and it's it's quite large. It's uh, in, in the world of, of manned submersibles, it's it's quite roomy. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a little, it's a little smaller than an RV. Wow. Stockton, <laughs> so. have you done this trip? I have not done the Titanic. I've been down to 4,000 meters uh, in the sub. Um, and been to a number of, uh, of other wrecks. So I'm really looking forward to getting down to the Titanic. Wow. So how did this idea come about? Well, we've been doing uh, expeditions all over the, uh, the world. We've done some up in uh, Desolation Sound. Um, we've done them in California, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. We did the Andrea Doria. So we've, we've done a number of these kind of projects. And, and obviously the Titanic is the most recognized wreck in the, in the world. And, and something we've, we've always wanted to do. We've always wanted to take people deeper. Uh, it just, we had to make our own sub to do it because none of the current subs um, are, uh, are capable or sufficient for what we need to do. Have you had a lot of interest then from people who might want to do this? Because it's not cheap, is it, Stockton? Uh, it is, but it's not cheap, but it's you know, half the price of going to space and I think twice as much fun. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and yes, we have had a great interest. We only have uh, two positions left um, for uh, this, this coming year, and we have a couple of people signed up for 2020. Is that your selling point on it? It's half the price of going into space and it's twice the funds? Well, I don't know. I may, I may use that in the future. I just came up with it. <laughs> so, uh, but it is, uh, it, it's a different experience. And a lot of our clients are going to space as well. So it's, there's, a, there's a big overlap. Uh, of people who are really looking for a unique experience. And, uh, and so we, we do have a lot of them. I was a space guy uh, at one time, and, uh, and it really is a sort of a similar personality characteristic of, of wanting to go where no one's been before. So wait a minute, you're telling me that some of the same people who have signed up to go to space are the same people who are signing up to go see the Titanic? Yes. Yeah, I'd say a third, about a third of our clients are also uh, Virgin Galactic clients. Wow, that makes me think that they have a little too much money, Stockton. Doesn't that make you think twice about that? Well, I don't know. Not for you, of course. It's good business for you, right? <laughs> it's good for me. <laughs> what are some of the tricky aspects of this, Stockton? Like, it's obviously been about 35 years since the Titanic was found. Uh, this, you know, what do you have to do to make this happen? 
Uh, it's a very complicated uh, process um, or complex. We have uh, everything from the launch and recovery system. We developed our own method for launching uh, the submersible that allows us to operate in much higher seas than, than typical research submersibles. And then having a submersible that was large enough for five people to, to make the economics work and to make it a better experience. So you're not just traveling. They, when the Russians did it, it was just two people and a Russian pilot. And so you didn't have a researcher who could really talk to you about what you're seeing and why it's unique, uh, which we think is a, a key element of why you'd go to the Titanic, to actually learn something as opposed to just to look at it and come to the surface. And so we had to develop the sub, um, and, the, and the really the only correct material for that is uh, carbon fiber um, ceramics potentially, but we have carbon fiber and titanium sub so that it is light enough and strong enough to be able to withstand the immense pressure at uh, 4,000 meters down. No kidding, immense pressure. Okay, so then what will people see when they get down there? What parts of the Titanic will be visible to them? Uh, well, our plan is to scan the entire wreck. So there are two main pieces of the forward and the aft piece. Um, the uh, the lead into the movie, uh, the, to James Cameron's movie Titanic, is actual, actual footage that he took from the Mere Submersible, so it should be remarkably similar to those for first 10 to 15 minutes of the movie. But we plan to uh, scan the entire debris field, so there's a five-square-kilometer area of stuff that was lighter than the hulls um, but still heavier than the water. And so that's everything from people's personal possessions to to effectively grave sites where people actually yeah. ended up. And, and apparently you, you, there are groups of pairs of shoes and things that don't get eaten by the bacteria, but everything else has been consumed by the ocean. And then, um, and then possessions that might be out there, everything from, uh, you know, spectacles and wallets and, you know, uh, all kinds of personal possessions that right. will have spread out across that debris field. And we'll scan that. So the goal over the next several years is to scan absolutely everything with a laser scanner that we have on the sub as well as high-definition 4K cameras. Right. Now, Stockton, this is a grave site. I mean, just as you described it right there, it is a yeah. grave site of people. So will it be appropriate in that sense? Uh, we, we plan to follow all the uh, UNESCO guidelines related to uh, exploring. It, it's a World Heritage Site as well. Um, and, uh, and we are not going to be leaving plaques or, or, you know, having parties down there. This is, this is a very solemn exercise. What we want to do is to be able to document the wreck as it is decaying and, and will at some point uh, disappear. Um, there's, there's great value in, in documenting it, and, and that's really our goal is to, to do this in a, in a respectful manner and to, and to fully document it. Um, there have been you know, everything from people having weddings on the Titanic uh, to to filming to salvage and we're not doing any of that okay how many people do you think in a year you'll be able to take down there uh with one sub uh we look to take about 50 to 60 people per year that's pretty good so and you're saying you're pretty much sold out for this year yes and when does it start when's the first trip uh leave we leave port june 28th well you know if you ever need a last minute person to sub in stockton you can always give me a call Okay, I'll put you on the list. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I don't, don't think I could pay full price. But if it goes on sale, let me know. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for that, Stockton. Very good. Very that good is to talk to you. Stockton Rush, who's the CEO of Ocean Gate Incorporated. They are a company that has produced this new submersible. He said it's about 22 feet long, carbon fiber, and they will take you down, paying customers, 50 to 60 of them a year, 
down to see the last remnants of the Titanic. Well, as we were hearing earlier there, some pretty big news coming from Apple today. They made a big announcement. Like usually they announce something big when they have one of these conferences. But this one today is huge because they're announcing a brand new streaming service, not just for what you read, but also for what you watch. So is this going to be a game changer in the entertainment news industry? We're going to talk more about this now with the help of Mike Agarbo, the host of Get Connected. Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you doing? I am good, thank you. I'm, I'm a little, I'm interested in trying to figure this out, if this is worth me spending some money. What did you think about the announcement? Well, it's interesting. The times are definitely changing. They had a, a number of announcements today. They had uh, the Apple News uh, Plus announcement, uh, which is essentially an online newsstand for newspapers and magazines for a monthly subscription. Uh, Apple Arcade, uh, you can subscribe to uh, a game service now uh, for a monthly fee. And uh, also the Apple uh, TV Plus. So they're really moving into the whole services side uh, of the uh, the industry. So it'll be interesting now, though, the Apple TV Plus, uh, they're really going after and competing against uh, a lot of the big uh, cable companies uh, out there now. Uh, they're going to be producing their own content and also signing up other uh, content providers like the HBO, CBSs, and Showtimes of the world. Is it too late, do you think? I mean, look, at they're pretty far behind. Companies like Netflix and Disney and Amazon Prime. Can Apple do this? Well, what's interesting is they've got a twofold approach from what I've uh, seen so far. Uh, they're going to be producing their own TV, movies, uh, and uh, documentaries. But at the same time, they're also going to be aggregating all the other favorite content channels uh, that you would uh, want to subscribe to as well. So we haven't got pricing yet. Uh, they'll be announcing that in the fall. Uh, but essentially, Apple will have their own kind of content, much like Netflix makes their own content. But if you also like HBO and Showtime and CBS, you can also uh, subscribe to that in through your Apple TV Plus uh, subscription package uh, as well. So it's kind of all aggregated into one app, all your favorite shows, and you'll be able to search through uh, all of them there. Kind of almost like how you have your Shaw or Telus uh, TV service. Interesting. Okay, and this is going to be available for Canadian consumers as well. Uh, apparently so. We haven't got all the details yet. Uh, they you know, made a big splashy announcement, as we've all seen. They've got huge uh, talent on board. Oprah, Jennifer Aniston, Steven Spielberg. I mean, they were just rolling out to, uh, the folks uh, there, uh, you know, basically to show that uh, they're in this game. But yeah, I mean, they're competing up uh, against some big players out there. Netflix would be the uh, the, the huge elephant uh, in the room. But remember, Apple, they've got uh, uh, the customer base. They've got hundreds of millions of uh, paying uh, Apple account holders, and as we know, they've got billions and billion, billions of dollars in the bank. So uh, I think it's going to be a good fight. Yeah, so do you think they have what it takes to win this thing, too? They are up against some very established competitors, but those deep pockets, as you mentioned there, do you think that's what's going to help them do well here? I think so, but I think what's interesting is how they're aggregating all the other channels uh, as well. So, uh, you know, obviously they're trying to build up their own library of uh, content, uh, but uh, they're trying to be the one-stop shop for all your viewing uh, for TV shows and movies. Uh, so, you know, making deals, they've made deals with HBO and CBS and, and Showtime and, and many other uh, channels uh, as well. So uh, you'll basically access them all through the Apple TV Plus uh, app on your, uh, on your Mac, your Apple TV, your phone, your iPad. Uh, and also they're building that into all the new TVs. They've done deals with Samsung. Sony, LG, Vizio. So that Apple TV uh, app will be literally everywhere. So that sounds like they're going above and beyond, like, say, what Amazon Prime has. 
I think very much so. And I, from what I read as well, I mean, the Amazon Prime uh, uh, channels uh, will also be available in the Apple TV uh, app uh, too. So, uh, yeah, they're going hard into this uh, game. But, you know, what was interesting is they're going after the whole periodical market as well with the, yeah. uh, the Apple News Plus uh, app. So for twelve ninety nine a month can- Canadian, uh, it's a fantastic deal because uh, it's a family subscription. So uh, you and uh, five other members of your family will be able to subscribe to this at the same time. You've got uh, uh, newspapers like the Toronto Star. You'll have access to Wired Magazine, Vogue, People, Time, uh, literally dozens and dozens of your favorite magazines for twelve ninety nine a month. You know, can you even buy a magazine for you know ten dollars well, <laughs> anymore? No, so I was, I was saying, fantastic volume. I already subscribe to that texture app, right? Which I pay about that same amount yeah. of money, and I get. But this, if this is going to give me even more for the same amount of money, like they're clearly going to cannibalize that market. Well, they bought Texture, so that's an Apple company. <laughs> so well, there you go. Uh, I'm already paying they, them then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. <laughs> so uh, they've uh, obviously integrated a lot of uh, that technology in those relationships. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, the world is going uh, subscription-based. And, you know, 12 a month, uh, you know, for you and your family to have access to all that news and, and magazines, I think that's a great value. And it is. The Apple Arcade, yeah, the Apple Arcade as well, they're trying to do the same thing. They've they made deals uh, with uh, a number of game developers and publishers to have one monthly uh, subscription fee to access hundreds of games uh, on your computers uh, and also your different mobile devices as well. But I guess, Mike, what it comes down to for families then is like how many of these subscriptions, how many times can you pay twelve ninety nine a month, right, for all of these different subscriptions? I know, uh, Samia. I said this a few years ago. Uh, there's going to come a point, in, uh, and it's now, you're basically inundated with all the different subscriptions that are in your life. Yeah. I mean, you've got your Spotify account, Apple Music. Now you're going to have Apple News. You've got Netflix. It's really starting to add up. Uh, you know, cable TV never looks so good. I can't. <laughs> many, many ways cheaper, right? <laughs> Who knew that it would actually make that look like a bargain? It, well, you're right. It looks yeah. cheaper. Yeah, but so that's what Apple is doing now. They're trying to amalgamate and aggregate all of that. So, uh I think they're definitely competing with all the the big uh, uh, cable providers uh, that are out there now. So uh, the landscape's going to look very different in the next five to ten years on how we get our content. So interesting. Mike, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That is Mike Agarbo, who is the host of Get Connected right here on CKNW. Let's talk money laundering in this province. Now, this morning in Maple Ridge, we heard Prime Minister Justin Trudeau say he thinks his government is tackling money laundering. Out here on the West Coast, though, we say it sounds like it's too little, too late. Where was the federal government when money laundering was causing so many problems? Like, what, three, four years ago, we were talking about it constantly. Well, we're learning more and more about that, actually. Sam Cooper, the global news investigative journalist, has been investigating this for the last few years. He has a new development now that he's joining us to talk more about. Sam, thank you for being here. Yes, thanks, Simi. Okay, so tell me about this latest story. We're talking about how the Canadian government didn't know that money laundering was going on. Did they know? Well, that's right. Uh, I got new information through law enforcement sources in the United States. They've been watching our developments in Vancouver and Toronto quite closely. And to them, it's not a surprise that we have these giant professional money laundering networks that are involved with gangs from around the world. They're saying that uh, they were watching this activity with a number of groups in uh, Colombia. That's where the cartels are very active and Mexico. Back in the early 2000s, they started to notice that a terrorist uh, organization known as Hezbollah from the Middle East had a 
what's called a basically a narco terrorist business unit that was in Colombia and working with some of these notorious cartels and offering professional money laundering services around the world. And what it entailed basically was they were using agents in Canadian cities and uh, and uh, commanding them to move cash and drugs in and out of these cities. And for those following what we've been reporting on in, Va- in Vancouver, it's very familiar. The, uh, you'd have cash dumped in these underground banks. Professionals would move it around the world. And this is what makes uh, money and drugs flow around the world and money get laundered into real estate. So you're saying that 10 years ago, more so, that the Canadian officials, RCMP, were told about this? Yes, specifically about these professional money laundering networks. They're very sophisticated, and the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration came up to Ottawa. They had evidence. They had phone taps. They had uh, police information from Columbia. And our sources tell us they made presentations to the RCMP and said, hey, look, Canada is a very serious money laundering hub for these international criminals. We can provide you with this evidence. We'd like to partner on investigations. And according to our sources, the RCMP was not interested. They essentially said this evidence is difficult to get through our Canadian court systems. Sources uh, could get exposed. Basically, uh, we're told they said not interested And so this is very upsetting to some people in the United States uh, policing world that feel like Canada missed an early opportunity and the the consequences are coming back on us now. No kidding. The DEA officials must have been shocked that you go and tell these people this and they're not interested. I can almost picture the meeting and the way it's described to me. They had uh, case evidence. They had tapes, uh, voice recordings. Uh, undercover agents that were working on the case. They laid it out and said, look, we have agents for Hezbollah in Halifax, uh, down in Windsor, near the Detroit border, Calgary, Vancouver. Now we know Toronto. And they explained it and said, can you can you get wiretaps going on these Canadian agents? And essentially, we're told that we can't do it. Too difficult. Wow. What has been the reaction, Sam, from the RCMP when you asked them about this? Well, I've been looking for answers from the RCMP uh, on these investigations for a few months, and most specifically about this reported meeting very recently. Uh, The RCMP, um, to put it plainly, they haven't given any information back. Essentially, they made a statement saying that we cannot, for privacy and operational reasons, uh, respond to this criticism. And I, I really don't think they're happy with the criticism. But, but look, this is a public safety issue in Canada now. We now have Canada's government saying we need to get a money laundering task force going. But hey, Australia responded to this exact same evidence and got a task force going years earlier. Right. So essentially, we turned a blind eye to this. And now we see the proliferation of what was happening here. And it seems like from your reporting in particular, Sam, every step of the way, law enforcement turned a blind eye. So is that something we also need to talk about, perhaps in a public inquiry? Absolutely. That's um, that's one of the issues, whether it's people in BC's government or the BC Lottery Corporation that maybe allegedly turned a blind eye for certain reasons. Uh, Canadian police, possibly in Ottawa, uh, in fairness to them, maybe we can say that Canada's privacy laws and anti-money laundering laws make it quite difficult to prosecute this case. So why would you want to tackle something and get a defense lawyer bat, uh, bat it right back at you with a failed case? 
that, so those are possible reasons. But I have to tell you, Simi, that when I talk to some well-sourced um, people in Ottawa, yeah. they say at some level, corruption has to have occurred in Canada's system in some places for crime to get such a foothold. And I think that's essential that we look at that in British Columbia. That's what I was wondering, too, because you wonder at some point, doesn't somebody speak up and say something? Doesn't somebody go public? Doesn't somebody say this is outrageous what is happening? And yet we didn't see anything like that. Well, for many years, we didn't. Uh, in in the past year, we have seen certain people uh, came came forward to me and when you say, why don't they come forward, I can give you an answer. Uh, I can tell you that it appears that some Canadian authorities are are slamming down very harshly on whistleblowers. And that raises big concerns for me because I think some whistleblowers, you can always question people's motives, but some people want Canada's uh, law enforcement system to start paying attention to this. And they believed it wasn't. So some people have have stuck their necks out and their necks have been uh, and necks have been chopped. Wow. And also, I find it interesting that it uh, sounds like a lot of these higher ups as well blame the judicial system that, oh, we can't get this case through the courts. Oh, this isn't going to work for us. Why wasn't anybody lobbying then for those changes saying we have a problem and we need to fix it? Well, that, I mean, uh, we're thinking along the same lines on that one. We've got a problem. We see case after case that either gets batted back or, or the prosecutors don't even want to try it anymore because they're saying Canada's privacy laws are an inhibition to us. So, yes, why weren't there high-level uh, yeah. hearings in Ottawa saying we've got a problem? Do we need a workaround within Canada's laws or do we need to amend laws? And so I think we've seen the problem become so serious that maybe we're, we're there now, but we should have been there years ago questioning it. Right. Essentially, nobody has been advocating at the highest levels in Canada for us to tackle money laundering. Do you think that's fair? Absolutely fair. And I think uh, for either in fair, I mean, the, the, the best we can say is people were asleep at the wheel. The worst we can say is that, as I've heard, some people in government have said too many people making too much money. Oh, that is so true. And we so is it just BC and Ontario we're talking about here? Would you say, Sam? From what I've seen so far, these professional money laundering networks with very deep connections, we can point to uh, the Middle East, uh, China, uh, Latin America. That those seems to that that's the triangle where the criminals are working together here. Vancouver, very strong. Toronto and Montreal. And also Windsor, Ontario, those are, those are um, I'd say, areas that pop up as being strong in these international networks. But I've heard information that this, uh, the BC casino money laundering network, police were seeing cash collected as far out as the prairies. So it seems to work from west to east and then from east to west with different networks. Do we think that these networks are still at work or has the kind of spotlight put a damper on some of that? Well, uh, I absolutely believe they're, they're still at work and very strong. We know that criminals are very adaptive. They're very global and they, they're high tech. We know the fentanyl is still coming in to British Columbia without yeah. a doubt. That means that the cash has to be going somewhere. Certainly, it's not going to the same level at all through the casinos and probably not real estate right now. But it's got to be going somewhere. So that's where we need to be looking. All right. Well, Sam, thank you so much for this. Thanks, Simi. Appreciate that. Another fascinating story from Sam Cooper, a Global News investigative journalist. You can check out his latest piece on the website, globalnews.ca.